Welcome to the History of the Americans podcast, episode 53. I am your host, Jack Henneman, and I'm recording this on December 30th, 2021 in New Orleans. If you are new to the podcast, we are telling the history of the lands now encompassed by the United States from the beginning without presentism. If you enjoy the podcast, I very much appreciate a nice review or rating on your podcast app of choice. Before we get to the history fun, I want to talk about a couple of things. As loyal and attentive listeners know, I had the idea for the podcast in October 2020 while on a four and a half thousand mile pandemic road trip to see friends and family spread out between Austin and the Adirondack Mountains in upstate New York. One of my law school roommates had turned me on to David Crowther's History of England podcast, which I listened to at length on that trip and got it in my silly head that I could do something similar for the Americans. I spent October and November learning how to make a simple podcast and doing a bunch of reading and put up the first episode, Zero, the introduction, on January 1st, 2021. My original idea was to put out about three episodes a month or maybe 40 a year, but today's is the 53rd substantive episode since the launch 363 days ago. As of this morning, there have been more than 112,000 aggregate listens and downloads in this first year. And I can't deny the fact that you like me right now. I can't believe I just did that. That assaulted even my tender sensibilities. Thank you very much for listening and telling people that you listen. It is indeed wonderful to have the work recognized. I have heard from some of you about the pacing. At this rate, how are we ever going to get to 1776, much less the Civil War or other things that people are interested in? Well, good question. The short answer is that I do intend to accelerate the pace and move a bit speedier along the timeline. But I want to preserve the things I like and continue to follow my muse, as it were. This whole podcast thing started as a sort of forcing function for me. I wanted to read American history in detail from the beginning, and it seemed that a podcast would keep me on track and force me to really learn in depth, at least for a non-professional. That is still the case, although I confess that the podcast itself and your engagement with it has been a lot more fun than I anticipated, and that is shaping my approach. The podcast is now more the dog than the tail, if that makes any sense. As long-standing listeners know, I like to look at things through a very wide lens. How the settlement of North America was affected by geopolitics and confessional rivalry in Europe, for example and also through a microscope, closely examining moments most people have not heard about, such as the story of Don Luis and the murder of those friars at the mouth of the Chesapeake, or Bartholomew Gosnold's expedition in last week's episode. I'm less interested in a sort of normal vision of history, if that makes sense. There are all sorts of podcasts that tell history in normal vision, as a textbook or survey course would do, or perhaps as a series of disconnected stories. I listen to some of those podcasts, but I think that this one, with its wide angle and microscope combined with chronological progression and rejection of presentism, is unique. So I do want to preserve those aspects as best I can. 
I'm not therefore quite sure how I will accelerate the pacing and stay true to the style of the podcast, but I am sure I'll figure it out. I'm going to try some things, and I hope you will continue to give me your reactions pro and con. I suspect that ultimately I will fly over moments that most American history fans know a lot about, say the Boston Tea Party. Just made that up as an example. Using the wide-angle lens and then look through the microscope at moments that catch my attention or perhaps because I read a book that grabs me. In all events, I hope you stick around and help me do this thing. Because I don't have a long-term plan, my process involves reading a bit ahead while working on the current thing. I've already read several books on Jamestown and Plymouth, even while mucking around on the coast of Maine in 1603. But sometimes I'm not very far ahead. Right now I'm reading David Hackett Fisher's book about Samuel de Champlain, recommended to me by listener Adam from Sherborne, Massachusetts. Champlain was in many respects the chief visionary and architect of France's settlement of North America. He was a methodical guy and studied everything he could find about the Atlantic coast and the St. Lawrence River region. Anyway, last Thursday, sadly just after I posted the episode talking about Bartholomew Gosnold encountering Indians sailing a Basque boat in 1602, I read this passage, fascinating to me, which tied right in. Quote, Some of Champlain's best sources were Basque whalers and fishermen, French Basques and Spanish Basques, as he called them. Their whaling stations dotted the American coast from Labrador to the Gulf of Maine for many years. They developed the technology of whale hunting and invented the light and graceful whaleboats that would be used for many centuries. Later, Champlain got to know a Basque named Captain Savalette, a fine old seaman who hailed from the French port of Saint-Jean-de-Loup. They first met in 1607 on Savalette's 42nd voyage to North America. He'd been making annual Atlantic crossings for many years, 83 of them since 1565, before Champlain was born. Captain Savalette and his crew of 16 men worked near Conso in what is now Nova Scotia, operating out of a little fishing cove that Champlain later named in his honor. The work was perilous, but highly profitable. In a good year, they took home 100,000 big cod, which brought as many as five crowns apiece on the Paris market. Through the 16th century, the Basques also traded with Indians who wanted iron pots, copper pans, steel knives, metal arrowheads, and woolen textiles from Catalonia. In return, the Basques wanted furs. So strong was the European demand that the rate of exchange for a fine beaver pelt rose from one knife to 80 knives in the course of Captain Savalette's career. Europeans also traded for products of the forest. Sassafras was valued as a medicinal tea and ginseng as a sexual restorative. By 1600, Native Americans had become aggressive entrepreneurs. Some Indians got the jump on competitors by acquiring European shallops and meeting European vessels at sea, a maritime equivalent of forestalling the market. A complex web of cultural relations had developed between Europeans and American Indians long before Champlain came to the New World. 
The northern coast acquired a unique trading language, a pigeon speech, borrowed from many tongues. Much of it was Basque and Algonquin. A startling example is the word Iroquois. Linguists conclude that it was a complex coinage in the pigeon speech of the North American coast, a French understanding of an Algonquin version of two Basque words that meant killer people. The term was well established when Champlain became the first to publish it in 1603. Apparently, none of these people knew that cultural appropriation is wrong. Anyway, Fisher's backstory is a cool elaboration on Gosnell's encounter with those sailing Indians in 1602. And how about that Captain Savalette surviving 83 Atlantic crossings in the 16th century? I want his kind of look. This episode is the second and final part of the Poppin, Sagadahawk Colony, and other adventures on the coast of New England, 1602 to 1608. Bartholomew Gosnold had returned to England in July 1602. As you know, if you listened to last week's episode, Gosnold's expedition had been meant to start a colony, but in the end, loaded up with cod and probably some furs and returned for reasons that may or may not have reflected a failure to persevere on the part of the prospective colonists. Regardless, the report from Gosnold's expedition, which I linked in the show notes last time, detailed the tremendous natural wealth of the New England coast. That report, and no doubt the usual bragging over a pint in pubs, would catalyze another expedition, that of Martin Pring, in 1603. We'll handle Pring the way we did Gosnold, a quick timeline, and then look at some of the more interesting episodes, including especially encounters with the local indigenous peoples. Martin Pring was only 23 years old when merchant adventurers in Bristol tapped him to command an expedition to the northeastern coast of today's United States. This is a handy thing to know in reading the narrative of the expedition because Pring did some things that perhaps an older and wiser man might not have done. He had two ships under his command, the 50-ton Speedwell and the 26-ton Discoverer. The ship sailed from Milford Haven in Wales on the 10th of April, 1603, just as news of Elizabeth I's death was spreading around the country. Sailing via the Azores on the route pioneered for the English, at least, by Bartholomew Gosnold, the two ships reached the northern coast of Virginia at latitude 43 degrees, just south of today's Portsmouth, New Hampshire, in the first part of June. From there, they sailed north to roughly the mouth of the Saco River on the coast of Maine and then turned around and went south to 41 and a half degrees where they stayed for more than a month. There's some debate over whether this was Edgartown, Martha's Vineyard or some other place, but let's just go with Edgartown since, well, it doesn't really matter all that much. Unlike Gosnold, Pring had no intention to set up a colony. His venture was apparently purely commercial. He was in search of sassafras, which in the words of the voyage's narrative is a, quote, plant of sovereign virtue for the French pox. That would be syphilis, according to the English of Shakespeare's day. And as some of late have learnedly written good against the plague and many other maladies, sassafras was apparently the hydrochloroquine of its day. All right, all right, cool your jets. I'm just goofing. 
The Wikipedia entry, however, is interesting on the topic. Numerous Native American tribes use the leaves of sassafras to treat wounds by rubbing the leaves directly into a wound and use different parts of the plant for many medicinal purposes, such as treating acne, urinary disorders, and sickness that increased body temperature, such as high fevers. East Asian types of sassafras are used in Chinese medicine to treat rheumatism and trauma. Some modern researchers conclude that the oil roots and bark of sassafras have analgesic and antiseptic properties. Different parts of the sassafras plant, including the leaves and stems, the bark and the roots, have been used to treat scurvy, skin sores, kidney problems, toothaches, rheumatism, swelling, menstrual disorders, sexually transmitted diseases, bronchitis, hypertension, and dysentery. Before the 20th century, sassafras enjoyed a great reputation in the medical literature, but became valued for its power to improve the flavor of other medicines. Sassafras root was an early export from North America as early as 1609, according to Wikipedia. Pring actually returned to England with his ships full of sassafras in October 1603, six years earlier than the learned editors of Wikipedia claim. So there you have another opportunity to go straighten them out, if you are so inclined. Pring's voyage is interesting for at least three reasons. First, he too came back with glowing reports of the wealth of the region. Second, his expedition's narrative describes various encounters with the local indigenous people, a couple of which are worth our time. Third, Pring was not, in his immaturity, particularly nice to the Indians. And along with the next expedition, may, or may not, have poisoned relations with the local tribes such that the Popham colony of 1607 would fail after only a bit more than a year. Here's the main section from Pring's narrative describing their relations with the Indians with a couple of my interjections. Quote, During our abode on shore, the people of the country came to our men sometimes 10, 20, 40, or three score, and at one time 120 at once. We used them kindly and gave them diverse sorts of our meanest merchandise. They did eat peas and beans with our men. Their own victuals were most of fish. We had a youth in our company that could play upon a gittern. Basically, a gittern was a medieval ukulele in which homely music they took great delight and would give him many things as tobacco, tobacco pipes, snake skins of six foot long, which they used for girdles, fawn skins and such like, and dance 20 in a ring and the gittern in the midst of them, using many savage gestures, singing lo la, lo la la lo. Him that first brake the ring, the rest would knock and cry out upon. That actually sounds like a fun bluegrass place in Nashville, actually. Some few of them had plates of brass a foot long and half a foot broad before their breasts. Their weapons are bows of five or six foot long of witch hazel, painted black and yellow, obviously fans of my Iowa Hawkeyes, the strings of three twists of sinews bigger than our bowstrings. Their arrows are 
of a yard and a handful long, not made of reeds, but of a fine, light wood, very smooth and round, with three long and deep black feathers of some eagle, vulture, or kite, as closely fastened with some binding matter as any fletcher of ours can glue them on. Their quivers are full a yard long and made of long-dried rushes wrought about two handfuls broad above and one handful beneath, with pretty works and compartments. Their boats, we brought one to Bristol, were in proportion like a wherry of the River Thames, seventeen foot long and four foot broad, and made of the bark of a birch tree, far exceeding in bigness those of England. It was sewed together with strong and tough twigs, and the seams covered over with rosin or turpentine, little inferior in sweetness to frankincense, as we made trial by burning a little thereof on the coals at sundry times after our coming home. It was open like a wherry, and sharp at both ends, saving that the beak was a little bending roundly upward, and though it carried nine men standing upright, yet weighed not at the most above 60 pounds in weight, a thing almost incredible in regard of the largeness and capacity thereof. Me again. You've heard in several of these narratives, and no doubt will again, that the English explorers would describe Indians as savages. This was not always, at least in the Elizabethan era, a term of opprobrium or contempt, Rather, the English often used the term to mean merely forest dwellers or something close to it. Pring, unfortunately, lacked the maturity or judgment of Bartholomew Gosnold or Francis Drake. There, I got his name in again. He had brought along two big war dogs, which he called Mastiffs. We know their names, Fool and Gallant. And nearly as I can tell, they are the first dogs in North America whose names have come down to us. These dogs must have been huge, insofar as Fool would carry around a pike with a broken handle in his mouth, much as your dog might refuse to let go of his rubber chicken squeaky toy. Anyway, Pring reports that when we would be rid of the savages' company, we would let loose the mastiffs, and suddenly, without cries, they would flee away. This certainly seems like a mean thing to do, and historians have seized on this to suggest that the locals changed their view of the English on account of it. That seems plausible to me, actually. In any case, things turned hostile toward the end of Pring's stay. Here's the account. On a day about noontide, while our men which used to cut down sassafras in the woods were asleep, as they used to do for two hours in the heat of the day, there came down about seven score savages armed with their bows and arrows and environed our house, wherein there were four of our men alone with their muskets to keep sentinel, whom the Indians sought to have come down unto them, which they utterly refused and stood upon their guard. Our master, likewise, being very careful and circumspect, having not passed two with him in the ship, put the same in the best defense he could, lest they should have invaded the same and caused a piece of great ordinance to be shot off to give terror to the Indians and warning to our men which were fast asleep in the woods, at the noise of which piece they were a little awaked and began to call for fool and gallant, their great and fearful mastiffs, and full quietly laid themselves down again, but being quickened again with a second shot, 
They roused up themselves, betook to their weapons, and with their mastiffs, great fool with a half pike in his mouth, drew down to their ship, whom, when the Indians beheld afar off, with a mastiff which they most feared, in a dissembling manner they turned all to a jest and sport, and departed away in a friendly manner. Yet not long after, even the day before our departure, they set fire on the woods where we wrought, which we did behold burn for a mile space. And the very same day that we weighed anchor, they came down to the shore in greater number, to wit, very near 200 by our estimation. And some of them came in with their boats to our ship, but we sent them back and with none of their entertainment. This is all we know. It's fair to say, however, that Pring did his fellow English no favors for having turned the previously partying Lola Lola La Indians into enemies. Scary as fool and gallant may have been, it is far from clear that Pring's depredations cemented the attitude of the Indians toward the English along the New England coast. Even scholars inclined to see things in those terms only suggest that might be the case. The historical record is just too thin and probably always will be too thin. It would take the expedition of George Weymouth in 1605 to raise the alarm along the Donland. It is now 1605, and James I is well settled on the throne of England. The motives for English colonization are shifting from the geopolitical to the commercial. In addition, the idea of colonization as a means for addressing social tensions in England is gaining currency. The enclosure of pastures and the relative decline of the woolen cloth trade has increased the ranks of the impoverished and underemployed. Catholics who have been marginalized in Protestant England are looking at the New World as a place where they might practice their religion more freely. James I supports both of these ideas to some degree. I confess I'm not an expert on that aspect of the literature. And it authorizes a Catholic gentleman, Sir Thomas Arundel, to send a ship to search for a suitable location. Under that mandate, Arundel recruits George Weymouth to captain the good ship Archangel to look for a viable place for colonization. The Archangel left Dartmouth on the last of March upon Easter Day. Now, if you Google Easter Sunday 1605, it will report that Easter fell on April 10th that year. The disparity is, as kids today would say, because calendar. Even as the rest of the Christian world had jumped 10 days from the old and the new calendar in the 1580s, England and her colonies would stick with the old system until 1752. As we have mentioned at least once before, we use the dates that appear in the various historical accounts rather than converting them to the modern calendar with any consistency, because that would be really kind of annoying and it rarely matters anyway. The Archangel arrived on the coast of Maine in mid-May, where Weymouth encountered the Indians who settled along the coast. There's been a fair amount of work to identify the tribes and leaderships of the local indigenous peoples, and it is summarized by Christopher Bilodeau in a paper from 2014, The Paradox of Sagadahuk, the Popham Colony, 1607-1608. Quote, There they found Indian peoples along the coast, broken up into numerous groups and used to dealing with Indians. 
The Mi'kmaqs lived in the area of modern-day Nova Scotia and New Brunswick, up to and including the St. John River. Groups of Etchemin Indians inhabited the coast from the St. Croix River through the Penobscot region to the Kennebec River. Interjection. That's roughly from Bangor down to Brunswick, for those of you not staring at Google Maps right now. Back to Bilodeau. Much of this area was known to the Indians as Mawushin, a region of over 10,000 people. Mawushin came under the general aegis of a sagamore named Bashaba, who held sway over 21 Indian villages between Sacco Bay and Mount Desert Island. Bashaba's village, Upsagon, rested on the Penobscot River at modern-day Bangor and included 60 structures that housed roughly 800 people in all. Finally, the populace Almuchiqua, not going to pronounce that right any day of the year, lived in a territory west of the Kennebuck that carried over into present-day Massachusetts. All of these tribes experienced tension with one another during the late 16th and early 17th centuries. This was especially true of the Almuchiqua and the Mi'kmaqs, as their hostilities often exploded into violence and war. Things did not go well from the start. A group of Indians in a canoe approached the archangel shortly after its arrival, one of which, according to a chronicler, when they came near unto us, spake in his language very loud and very boldly, seeming as though he would know why we were there, and by pointing with his oar towards the sea, we conjectured he meant we should be gone. I'd say that was a solid conjecture. Weymouth did persuade the Indians to receive him, but blew the protocols of a meeting with Bathsheba by mistaking a diplomatic encounter for a trading opportunity and insisting that Bathsheba come to him rather than vice versa, increasing mistrust rather than diminishing it. Eventually, on June 4th, Weymouth kidnapped five Indians to bring back to England. Their names, at least as they come down to us, were Nahanada, Amaret, Skidwares, Manetto, and Asakamwate, or variations thereof, depending on the account. There's evidence that Weymouth had intended to do this all along. Weymouth returned to England on July 18, 1605, eager to find sponsorship for a return voyage. The gunpowder plot of November 5th that year, remember, remember the 5th of November and such, put an end to support for a Catholic colony in North America. So Weymouth turned to other West Country supporters of colonization, eventually networking his way to Sir John Popham, the Lord Chief Justice of England at the time, and Sir Ferdinando Gorges, commander of the fort at Plymouth. Weymouth arranged for Popham to take Nahanada and Amaret into his household, and Gorges took Manetto, Skidwares, and Asakomoid into his. In long conversations over a period of at least a year, Gorges in particular learned much from the Indians to excite him about the prospects of the coast of Maine for English colonization. The political and financial momentum in England for colonization was clearly building now, 15 years after confirmation that the Roanoke colony had been lost. On April 10, 1606, James I signed the first charter of the famous Virginia Company. 
That document authorized two colonies along the American coast, quoting now with a few annotations. James, by the grace of God, King of England, Scotland, France, and Ireland, a defender of the faith, and whereas our loving and well-disposed subjects, Sir Thomas Gates and Sir George Summers, Knights, Richard Hacklite, Clerk, Probendary of Westminster, and Edward Maria Wingfield, Thomas Hannam, and Raleigh Gilbert Esquires, William Parker and George Popham, gentlemen, and diverse others of our loving subjects, have been humble suitors unto us, that we would vouchsafe unto them our license to make habitation, plantation, and to deduce a colony of sundry of our people into that part of America commonly called Virginia, and other parts and territories in America, either appertaining unto us or which are not now actually possessed by any Christian prince or people, situate, lying, and being all along the seacoasts between four and thirty degrees of northerly latitude from the equinoctial line, that's roughly Wilmington, North Carolina, and five and forty degrees of the same latitude, roughly the border of Maine and New Brunswick, and in the mainland between the same four and thirty and five and forty degrees, and the islands thereunto adjacent or within 100 miles of the coast thereof. And to that end, and for the more speedy accomplishment of their said intended plantation and habitation there, are desirous to divide themselves into two several colonies and companies, the one consisting of certain knights, gentlemen, merchants, and other adventurers of our city of London and elsewhere, which are and from time to time shall be joined unto them, which do desire to begin their plantation and habitation in some fit and convenient place between four and thirty and one and forty degrees of the said latitude alongst the coasts of Virginia, that would be between Wilmington, North Carolina, and Greenwich, Connecticut, and the coast of America aforesaid, and the other consisting of sundry knights, gentlemen, merchants, and other adventurers of our cities of Bristol and Exeter, and of our town of Plymouth, and of other places, which do join themselves unto that colony, which do desire to begin their plantation and habitation in some fit and convenient place between eight and thirty degrees and five and forty degrees of the said latitude. That would be between the Maryland and Virginia border on the eastern shore of the Chesapeake, and the border of Maine and Nova Scotia. All alongst the said coast of Virginia and America as that coast lieth. Okay, we're done with James. thought that was interesting, though. As you have no doubt anticipated, the London group would go on to settle at Jamestown, and the West Country group would pick the coast of Maine. But in fact, they might have lawfully, at least in the eyes of James I, settled very closely to each other and cooperated, probably would have had more success had they done so. But in the West Country group had already invested heavily in learning about the New England coast, and regional pride and commercial competition precluded cooperation. Now, among the humble suitors to James in the Charter's recitations are George Popham and Raleigh Gilbert. George Popham was the nephew of Sir John Popham, the Chief Justice, and along with Ferdinando Gorges, one of the principal financial backers of the Northern Colony. 
Even though he was already in his late 50s, George would become one of the leaders of the 1607 expedition to establish the colony. Raleigh Gilbert was one of the sons of Sir Humphrey Gilbert, the first holder of Elizabeth's Virginia patent, who died in 1583 when his tiny ship Squirrel sank in a storm off the Azores. He fatalistically sitting on the deck reading Utopia. Long-standing and attentive listeners will remember that Humphrey Gilbert was Sir Walter Raleigh's half-brother, and in addition to leaving the Virginia patent to Walter, he would name his young son Raleigh Gilbert. We do not know when Raleigh Gilbert was born, but he couldn't have been younger than his mid-twenties in 1607, and probably not older than his early thirties. He would become the other leader of the Popham colony. Sadly, the two could not have been more different in their personality, leadership style, and maturity. As is our habit, we'll run through a timeline of the expedition and its fate, and then return to look at the controversy around it. In 1606, Sir John Popham and Ferdinando Gorges each sent an exploratory mission to the region. Popham's mission, under the command of Martin Pring again, and Thomas Hannum, and with one of the kidnapped Indians, Nahanada along, arrived safely off the coast of Maine. They would make a detailed map of Maine's coast and gather other useful information and leave Nahanyada behind with his people. Gorge's exploratory expedition would fail miserably, as Captain Henry Challens would make the poor choice to sail via the southern route through seas controlled by the Spanish and would be captured in the Strait of Florida by Spanish privateers operating out of Santo Domingo. Challens, the 29 Englishmen aboard as his crew, and the two Indians along, Asacomoyet and Manito, would fall into Spanish hands. They were sent as captives to Spain, where Manito would die. Eventually, some of the others, including Challens and Asacomoyet, would get back to England. With the detailed information from Hannam and Pring, Sir John Popham and Gorges would organize the colonizing expedition. It would consist of two ships, the Gift of God under the command of George Popham and the Mary and John under Raleigh Gilbert. They would sail from England on May 31, 1607 and carry around 100 colonists, including the last two of the five kidnapped Indians, Skidwares and Amaret. Curiously, neither the sponsors nor the captains documented a coherent purpose or business plan for the mission. Among the possibilities were mining for precious metals, a passion of gorges, or trading with the Indians for furs, or fishing for cod, or searching for a northwest passage, still a possibility in the minds of leading Englishmen. Neither George Popham nor Raleigh Gilbert would act with focused purpose toward any of those objectives, as nearly as we can tell from the scant historical record. On June 10th, Sir John Popham would die. The just-departed colonists would not learn of this for almost another year, and the news then would demoralize them, not least because he had committed to support the colony financially to the tune of 500 pounds per year. After a turbulent crossing on August 16th, the two ships arrived at the mouth of the Kennebec River near the site of today's Phippsburg, Maine, and within a few days chose the place for their fort and settlement, which they named Fort St. George, perhaps a 
dozen miles southeast of Brunswick. In August and September, the settlers unloaded the ships, began work on a fortification and other buildings, and explored the area, during which they had several encounters with local Indians that might have gone worse, but also might have gone much better. These encounters and others form the basis of recent arguments that the Popham colony failed because of poor relations with the locals, a topic to which we will return. On October 8, 1607, the Mary and John sailed for England, arriving at Plymouth on December 1st. The winter of 1607-1608 would be a terribly difficult one, even by the standards of the coast of Maine. In fact, the very cold weather that year swept the northern hemisphere. The settlers at Jamestown suffered grievously, and the ice on the Thames was so thick that shipbuilders constructed vessels on top of the ice as if it were a dry dock. The gift of God stayed with the Popham colonists until the ice built up to the point of danger. And when she was forced to sail, 50 colonists went home with her, leaving a bit more than 50 to stay. On February 5, 1608, George Popham died. Henry Otis Thayer described his death as having released him from the onerous duty. This would leave the callow and assertive Raleigh Gilbert in charge. Notwithstanding the terrible weather, Popham may have been one of only two of the remaining 50 settlers to die, a remarkable record of survival, especially compared to the carnage unfolding at the sister colony, Jamestown, at just the same time, where more than half the colonists would die that winter. On March 20, 1608, two relief ships left England, arriving at Fort St. George some point in May. The colonists first learned then that Sir John Popham had died just after their departure from England almost a year before. On July 5th, 1608, Raleigh Gilbert's oldest brother, Sir John Gilbert, died, leaving Raleigh the family estate. A final resupply ship would leave England in July bearing that news and arrive at the colony in September 1608. Raleigh Gilbert immediately determined that he had to go back to England to take over the family lands. With both leaders dead, no obvious successor winter coming again and financial support fading, the remaining colonists left with Gilbert in October, ending the story of the Popham Colony of the Virginia Company. Now, for 280 years, the site of the Popham Colony was lost to history. Then in 1888, a map of the site and the planned fort surfaced in the General Archives in Simancas, Spain. It is apparently a copy of the original sent by Spain's ambassador in London to Philip III, suggesting that, notwithstanding the formal peace between England and Spain, espionage continued apace. In 1994, the site was confirmed by archaeology. The burning question, at least if you are a historian of the region, is why did the settlers abandon Fort St. George? For the longest time, the answer seemed obvious. The colony lacked clear purpose. The two leaders were frequently at odds. The winter was brutal. The measured leader Popham died, leaving the headstrong Gilbert in charge. The colony lost its primary financial backing when Sir John Popham died. And then Gilbert's decision to go home sealed the deal. Why put up with danger and cold for no good, clear upside? 
In recent years, however, a new generation of historians have argued that the Popham colony failed because the English had treated the Indians along the coast poorly. Examples of such arguments appear in papers by Alfred Cave in 1995 and Christopher Bilodeau in 2014, both of which I have linked in the show notes. Both review the documented encounters between the colonists in August and September 1607, most of which involved diplomatic offense rather than violence, the attitude of most of the English, the desertion of the two remaining kidnapped Indians, and the writings of a French Jesuit who came to that shore years later and recorded stories from Indians that suggested a lot more bloodshed than had surfaced in any of the English reports or correspondence. And indeed, Gilbert, in contrast to George Popham, was high-handed and just blockheaded in his dealings with the Indians of the area, including the Sagamore Bashaba and Nahanyada, the defected translator. Adding up all these depredations, which are no doubt true and then some, both authors argue that had the English not treated the Indians as they had, the settlement would have thrived, or at least survived. Having been through all of this stuff, including Caves and Bilodeau's papers in some detail, I think they are wrong, and that the old-school interpretation is correct, that the colony failed because it had an ill-defined purpose, lost its financial backing, and suffered from divided leadership followed by no leadership. Indeed, the Popham colonists did not actually fail. They worked very hard and successfully. The 50 or so colonists who remained after the gift of God sailed home in December survived a brutal winter almost to a man. They seem to have fed themselves from imported supplies and effective fishing and hunting. They completed a substantial fortification, multiple dwellings and other buildings, and built an entire pinnace, the Virginia of Zagadahawk, which would carry some of them back across the Atlantic in 1608 when Raleigh Gilbert threw in the towel. Finally, they would return to England with many kinds of furs obtained from the Indians by way of trade, in quotes, which implies that their relations with at least some of the local Indians, high-handedness notwithstanding, were not so damaged that trade was impossible. The Popham colonists were more productive and likely to survive than any comparable European effort on the east coast of the United States until at least Plymouth, and even the Pilgrims lost half their number in that first ugly year. To me, it is obvious that the Popham colonists left because of a failure of purpose and leadership, which is more demoralizing than any actual adversity, including angry Indians. So why are modern historians, at least Cave and Bilodeau and no doubt others, enamored of the idea that the colony failed because the English mistreated the Indians? Your guess is as good as mine, but I bet neither of those guys buy one of my anti-presentism t-shirts. Thank you again for listening to the History of the Americans podcast. Your emails have been very encouraging. Please keep them coming. You can reach me with questions, corrections, eruptions of indignation, or pats on the back on the contact page for the website, thehistoryoftheamericans.com or by email at thehistoryoftheamericans at gmail.com. Until next time, when we look at that other colony James I authorized in the Virginia Company Charter of 1606.